The Blaze Radio Network. On demand. I want to talk to you a little bit about Relief Factor. For over four years, Relief Factor had been helping people here at the studio. And, um, you know, besides my besides my war injury and that football injury that I had, uh, you know, I, I just... First of all, I don't believe in... Yeah, I love Dow Chemical. I mean, I believe I'm Mr. 1950. Loaded up with drugs. That's got to be the best way. So uh, when you have debilitating pain and you know loaded up with drugs is not the way to live your life. I don't want to I don't want to live that way. 100% drug free, created by doctors, four key ingredients that fight uh, inflammation in your body. It is relief factor. I started taking it about a year ago and it is it's incredible for me. Try it. Get your life back. Get out of pain. Try the quick start now at relieffactor.com. relieffactor.com. Glenn Beck. Yesterday the the first funeral uh for George H W Bush happened in the uh the National Cathedral, and it was everything you think a Bush funeral should be like or would be like. There were no snarky comments except from the press. There was no lecturing anyone on politics. It was just truly humble uh, retelling of a man's life. It was... It was kind it was decent. It was normal. The press immediately jumped into, oh, did you see how Hillary Clinton and, and Trump, Trump behaved like, can you shut up? Sincerely, shut up. Here's a guy, George W. Bush, who I think is liked by every single president, all of them. Like George W. Bush. Here's a guy who had reason to hate Donald Trump. Didn't say anything. Was polite. Was kind. Who has, has reason to hate the Obamas. Because look at what they did to him. They just trashed him for four years. It's the Bush economy. Well, if Bush hadn't have screwed it up so much. He never responded. In fact, yesterday... He brought Michelle Obama candy because the last time they were at a funeral, he did it. And they become friends. As he was describing his, his father yesterday, he talked about who he was. He said, my dad knew how to die young. Probably because twice in his life, he almost did. And he said, I think those brushes with death made him cherish the gift of life. And he vowed to live every day to the fullest. Dad was always busy in constant motion, but never too busy to share his love of life with those around him. He taught us to love the outdoors. He loved watching dogs. He loved landing uh, the elusive striper. Once confined to a wheelchair, he seemed happiness sitting on his favorite perch in the back porch at Walker's Point, 
contemplating the majesty of the Atlantic. The horizons he saw were bright and hopeful. He was genuinely an optimistic man, and that optimism guided his children and made each of us believe that anything was possible. How many of us are doing that with our children now? He talked about his service to the nation. He talked about how he didn't judge people. Dad could relate to people from all walks of life. He was an empathetic man. He valued character over pedigree, and he wasn't a cynic. He looked for the good in each person and usually found it. Dad taught us that public service was noble and necessary, that one could serve with integrity and hold true to the important values like faith and family. He strongly believed it was important to give back to the community and the country in which one lived. He recognized that serving others enriched a giver's soul. To us, he was the brightest of a thousand points of life. When he lost, he shouldered the blame. He accepted that failure is a part of living a full life. But he taught us never to be defined by failure. He showed us how setbacks can strengthen. He went on to describe, and I urge you to read this eulogy. Or to go back and listen to it again. If you didn't hear it the first time, go go back and listen. He's describing what a man should be. And you don't hear that anymore. Andrew Heaton uh, is uh, in today. Andrew Heaton has a new podcast called Something's Off with Andrew Heaton. There's a, there's a story from Vancouver that traditional masculine values uh, are being ditched by millennial men. Can you tell me, as a millennial, what are traditional male values? I, I'm not sure. I mean, first of all, keep in mind this is Canada. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm looking at this, and it's from Vancouver. So this, it says young Canadian men, and I, I highlighted that. Men seem to be holding masculine values that are distinctly different from those of previous generations. Um, some of the, you know, I, I, I haven't read the report, but I'm reading through the, the synopsis of it. Some of it makes sense to me. Some of it I'm not sure of. There seems to be this kind of shift in emphasis from physical strength to health, which is good on my end, because I, I, would, I would much rather try and pick up a woman at a bar based on my, my, uh, uh, you know, my metabolism than uh, stuff I could lift. Uh, so that's, that's right. good on right. that end. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I don't know that it's so much that we're actually altering what it is to be a male so far as it's just sort of bad to think about it. I, I do think there's some of that going on right now where uh, it's, you know, I've, I've mentioned before on your, on your show that I moved here from New York. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, one of the things that was interesting to me about that experience was uh, I didn't go into New York thinking of myself as a white male. I am. I mean, I'm demographically a white male, but it just wasn't important to me. I didn't notice. Yeah, I, it's, yeah. I am. If, for those of you listening that can't see me, I am a storm of mayonnaise. <laughs> You're, it's, 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 uh, I'm, I mean, I'm literally wearing tartan truce right now. Yeah, and this so time, it's, it's, like, it's, it's, it's uncomfortable. Yeah, it's, uh, I've got a pocket square yeah, on. Uh-huh. Uh, there's, mm-hmm. uh, but, but that wasn't p- part of my identity. Uh, you know, if you'd asked me when I came into New York, I'd say I'm a comedian. I, you know, I talk about politics. Uh, and by the time I left, that had kind of been hammered into me. And it's not, it's not necessarily good that you're a white uh, male. Yeah, and, how'd they uh, hammer that into you? Uh, it's brought up a lot. Uh, like, or if we'll say, for example, if I have a contrary opinion, that's something mm. that it's like, well, you, you know, you are coming from a position of privilege, uh, and and which is a way of saying. Did it. you say I, I'm from Oklahoma? 
<laughs> There's no privilege at all in that. Yeah, that uh, which there too. Like I, I think um, you know, the phrase multivariate analysis comes to mind. I, I dated a young lady in New York uh, who she's from Oklahoma as well, and uh, she's from uh, uh, Coweta. Uh, shout out to Kawita. But like, but while we were dating, she could not call her dad. Her dad doesn't own a phone. He doesn't. Like, he's he's that poor. Uh, and this is this is two years ago, three years ago. But he doesn't own a phone. And if she needs to get a hold of him, she has to call her neighbor or write him a letter. And I think like that. I don't feel like it's fair to lump that guy into the same category as I am. It's not fair to lump us into the same category of like a hedge fund manager. It's- when my sister moved to uh, Wyoming. She used to have to go to a phone pole about five miles away from her house. She didn't have a phone. She was too poor to to put a phone in. Uh, And she had to drive to a phone pole. And she would stand sometimes, you know, hip deep to call and say, hey, Merry Christmas. We thought, you know, we're like, move back to civilization. (laughs) Uh, But, I mean, is that privilege? Is that privilege? I, I, th- I think in general, whenever your your instinct is to engage with people by negating their ability to make an argument, it's a bad thing. You know, uh, it's it's one thing to go. I think that you're wrong. Uh, it's another thing to say you you are just forbidden to venture outside of what I believe is the proper narrative. So did you hear George W. Bush's eulogy? Uh, I, I, most of it. Yeah. Most of it. So um, I urge you to go back and listen to it. Tell me. That that isn't something that we would all say, I, I want to be like that. Yeah. That oh, guy was a, a paragon. He really was. Character. Uh, the, I, the, the, the photo, I'm sure it's been making the rounds, but the photo that I thought was very touching was, and he's so quiet about it. This, uh, George H.W. Bush was a guy who really didn't like political theater. Um, he was raised by his mother to not use the, the pronoun I very often. Mm-hmm. But um, I think in his 80s, uh, there's this great photo of him completely bald because one of the Secret Service men, uh, yeah. His son, I think, had got leukemia, and so mm-hmm. all the Secret Servicemen um, shaved their heads in support, and George H.W. Bush just did it. Um, and, like, you know, it wasn't like a huge national story. It did make the rounds a little bit, but it wasn't like he did a press conference. It's mm-hmm. just he wanted to be supportive of this kid. And I, I think that kind of, um, you know, that deep character that was very much concerned with people around him rather than adulation. Bringing candy to Michelle Obama. Oh, I thought that was cute. That was, it was George W. Bush there, right? Yeah. Yeah. That but was, that, if that isn't his dad, I mean, he was thinking about her. You imagine how hard it is to have a funeral that goes on and on and on and on and on. He, George H.W. Bush died. They put him in a coffin. They fly Air Force One down. They put him in the back. The whole family gets on board. They have a big ceremony in the uh, laying in state in the rotunda of the Capitol. Then they have a giant parade to go to the national, uh, uh, the uh, national cathedral. He has to give a eulogy. Then they take the body after like the third 21 cannon salute. They put him back on air force one. They fly to Houston where they're going to have a parade and, uh, uh, and, and then another funeral. I, I so hope that in the middle of all of this, George W. Bush went, hey, I need to stop at Quick Trip. And like ran <laughs> in and was like, you guys got Snickers? And like, I, like bought it for Michelle Obama. That would, that would be the most seri- ser- uh, uh, bizarre thing for the guy running that. I mean, how great is that? Can you imagine, seriously, thinking about me, uh, uh, burying your father who you were close to yeah. and, and having to go just through that. And yesterday, 
Do you have the clip, Sarah, just of the last part of his eulogy? Play this. In his inaugural address, the 41st president of the United States said this. We cannot hope only to leave our children a bigger car, a bigger bank account. We must hope to give them a sense of what it means to be a loyal friend, a loving parent, a citizen who leaves his home, his neighborhood, and town better than he found it. What do we want the men and women who work with us to say when we are no longer there? That we were more driven to succeed than anyone around us? Or that we stopped to ask if a sick child had gotten better and stayed a moment there to trade a word of friendship? Well, Dad, we're going to remember you for exactly that and much more. And we're going to miss you. Your decency, sincerity, and kind soul will stay with us forever. So through our tears, let us know the blessings of knowing and loving you, a great and noble man, the best father a son or daughter could have. Oh, my gosh. And in our grief, let us smile knowing that Dad is hugging Robin and holding Mom's hand again. Here's a guy who has put on a strong face all week and been lifting other people up. I don't know if you saw yesterday when he was accompanying the casket and everything else, but it dawned on me yesterday, the last time I saw the last time I saw him look like that. He had this, he had almost like a frown, but he was biting his, his lip and you could tell that he wasn't, I mean, he was engaged and he was trying to hold it together. And I realized yesterday as the, as they were doing another 21, you know, cannon salute. And I watched him and I realized I haven't seen that face on George. I've only seen it once, one other time. And it's when they whispered in his ear, yeah. we're under attack. Mm. Remember he sat there and he kind of frowned and he bit his lip. That guy was working hard to hold it together all day. And one crack there. I think um, it, it's a lot of the time when we look at this kind of stuff, uh, we we almost uh, dehumanize the people in it. Um, you know, it, it's ultimately that's his dad that died, which is really sad for him, regardless of the, the political connections. Regard, like it's not George W. Bush is in that capacity not there as a former president. He is, but that's really incidental and secondary. I'm glad that they did. I mean, they they did a secondary funeral in Houston. Um, yeah. Uh, at, or I guess at College Station uh, at the uh, George H. W. Bush Library, and I'm really glad they did. Um, because uh, that's got to be that's got to be very tough um, to have to put on that uh, that that level of of public facing decorum when you're you're burning up inside. Uh, and here he is doing a job as a son and a former president of honoring his father the way his father and mother would have been proud mm-hmm. instead of instead of wallowing in his own grief. I just I find this family remarkable. Do you so out of curiosity, what do you think George H. W. Bush is going to be remembered for? Like I I think probably the Cold War and character. I think those are the yeah, two things I that, think so. that are going to really stand out. Yeah, I think so. And his son will be remembered. You know, George W. Bush said to me, "I'm prepared to be the most hated man um, on the planet for for the next fifty years." Well, good news there. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that is that has been eclipsed. You're yeah. you're safe, sir. Yeah, <laughs> he said. I'm I'm prepared. He said because I know that in 50 years from now, 
they're going to look back and realize this is they did what they had to do. They did the only thing they could do. Um, and um, he said, I'm I'm confident that history will remember. And, you know, you George H.W. Bush, I think history will remember the guy. You know, when Clinton came in, <clears throat> they started changing a lot of a lot of policies uh, in the Middle East. I'm sorry, not in the Middle East, in the Soviet bloc. Mm. And George Bush, that was not something we didn't even really think about that. No, and that's to his great testament. Like I, yeah. I, I mentioned this, I, I did kind of a, 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 a postmortem of, of the Bush administration on my podcast earlier this week. And, and I mentioned that, that when you think about the collapse of the Cold War, you don't tend to think about it. We think about the fall of the Berlin Wall, but we don't really think about anything else. And that's to the great testament of, of George Bush that it wasn't a bit, it could have been terrible. That could have gone off the rails. That's a nuclear empire, a nuclear empire disintegrating. And that could have gone real bad real quick. And what's amazing is not only do you not think about it, you also don't think about him. Yeah. Until you stop and go, wait a minute, wait a minute. What was that like? Then you realize, oh my gosh, he managed that thing. Mm -hmm. That's truly his kindness first. The the managing of the collapse of the Soviet Union, a distant second. Um, and I think that's exactly how he would want it to be. All right, I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, LifeLock. Look, you want to be able to go online and, uh, you know, do all your Christmas shopping. And you just please, world. Just leave me alone. Just leave me alone. I just want to go on and do my Christmas shopping. I, I, I want to be able to use the internet uh, in ways that makes my life a little easier. The last thing I want to have to worry about is somebody coming in and hacking, taking all of my stuff, you know, scamming me in some way or another, or holding my, um, you know, holding my hard drive hostage. That's where LifeLock comes in. You need to live your life. Somebody else needs to watch out for these things for you. And LifeLock now with Norton Security will do that. LifeLock uses uh, technology that only they have to detect and alert you to a wide range of identity threats. Norton now is joining them and it protects your devices against cyber threats like like malware. Now, nobody can prevent all identity theft or cybercrime or monitor all transactions at all businesses. But no matter the season, LifeLock with Norton Security is right there for you, and they will spot the things that you're going to miss on your own. So go to LifeLock.com. Use the promo code BECK for an additional 15% off your first year. It's promo code BECK, 15% off at LifeLock.com. You know, I didn't, I didn't recall until this week the role that George H.W. Bush played in in my life in uh, April of 1988. It was, uh, my daughter was um, being born, and he had just run for uh, president, or was running for president in 88, in April. And um, I think it was on 60 Minutes, and he talked about Robin, and it was the first time I, I heard him. And he, he spoke about um, the sanctity of life. And uh, my daughter had just been born, and I remember watching. I think it was 60 Minutes, and I, 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 she was home for maybe a couple of days. And I was holding her, and she was all connected to wires and everything else. And, and uh, 
and I was just, I just, I was so beside myself. I just didn't, I mean, everything was up in the air. Um, and, uh, and he talked about the sanctity of life and he talked about his daughter and he just gave me such hope. I mean, it was, it was at one of the lowest points of my life and I don't even remember what he said. I just remember feeling there's hope. This it's going to be okay. No matter what happens, it's all going to be okay. That's a remarkable gift to give somebody. Truly a remarkable gift. All right. Uh, we have uh, Steve Dace uh, coming in in just a second. And, and we might, uh, I, I think we might have to talk to him a little bit about um, Bob the Tomato, who we found out is extraordinarily racist um, because he makes uh, he makes vegetables of color uh, look bad. I don't know if anybody's noticed, but all of the vegetables except cauliflower are vegetables of color. And a podcast for the Blaze TV. It's Steve Dace joining us now. Hello, Steve. How are you? Morning, Glenn. How are you doing? Uh, I'm, well, you don't sound happy. <laughs> Morning, Glenn. How are you doing? A little matter of fact. Yeah. Wasn't it? My bad. Sorry yeah. about that. Let's start over again. Steve, how are you? I am better than I deserve, Mr. Black. How are you, brother? <laughs> that, that, that's fantastic. You're also lying. Um, uh, I'm just watching the Dow uh, just uh, spiral out of control. Uh, only down uh, only down 406 points. Uh, no, 412. And, you know, no, big, no big deal. Just about 2% uh, on the opening bell. So, uh, you know, nothing to worry about. Um, Steve, I don't know if you know this, uh, but... Uh, Veggie Tales is racist. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I don't remember that. Uh, well, watching all of those with my kids all of those years when they were little. I'm, but I, I think I'm blinded to it because of my uh, heteronormative uh, Caucasian uh, patriarchal uh, tendencies. There you go. So a group, I, I catch it. A group of students in California uh, have an annual whiteness for, forum. Now, we were, I'm pretty sure, don't you think, uh, Andrew, that is, we're pretty sure this is, they're not for whiteness. No, I, I was confused by that, because the, the title of, like, the, the annual whiteness conference or something, I thought, oh, that's, you need, you need to steer clear of that. But no, I, th- I think it's about whiteness, and probably not in a favorable capacity. Correct. So now, they have come out against VeggieTales and said that it is dangerous for children. Actual words, dangerous for children. Um, they said that it's Bob the Tomato and uh, Larry the Cucumber. Um, Cucumbers you, have been through a lot, Glenn. I, you should leave them alone. I know. So, but they are they're villains because they all of the all of the colored vegetables uh, are are noted in the show as the bad guys. Now, is this? I've, I've not seen this. These are they're in comas. Is that what you, you mean when you say no, vegetables? No. No, it's an actual cucumber and an actual tomato. So, oh, it seems much better now. So di- you never picked up on that, Steve. I didn't. But, you know, there's, there's a couple of things at play in stories like this. Every year on my show, Glenn, we, we always go in. We start a new year with like a theme. You know, I, I try to model myself after my all-time favorite bands, U2 and the Beatles, and just kind of reinvent yourself so you're not just doing the same stale thing. Mm-hmm. And so our, our theme for next year is no BS. 
All right. And and one of the things and we started it yesterday on this clip with Katie Tur at MSNBC talking about how meaningless life is because we won't uh, you know, focus uh, so wholeheartedly on on global warming. And, and I think what I mean by BS in these cases is force them to live by what they claim they believe. For example, if you really believe that um, if that whiteness is racist and you're at a university, uh, remove yourself from the university then drop out of school so that someone of color may have your spot. When Kirsten Powers said on CNN a couple of weeks ago that uh, she has been uh, a beneficiary of the white patriarchy. If you really believe that, Kirsten, quit your paid gig at CNN so someone of color may have that spot. If you really believe that, um, you know, what happened to Native Americans was so absolutely dreadful and terrible that you just can't even, then give up all the trappings of Western civilization, uh, trade in Wi-Fi for wampum, and join the local reservation. And if Katie Turr really believes that all is meaningless because we won't make global warming uh, our single-minded focus, you know, don't take that gas-guzzling, you know, SUV unmarked out front of 30 Rock home to your posh flat there on the Upper East Side. Quit your gig uh, and, you know, grab a placard and go out there in Times Square, bang your drum uh, and say, bring out your dead. These people don't believe any of this stuff. They may feel it. But they don't believe it. No, wait a minute. And what Hang they on. are, they're, they're, post-modern, they're postmodern iconoclasts, Glenn. They're just attempting to deconstruct and destroy the previous existing norms in order to make way for the new normal. That's what this is. Now, hang on just a second. Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders spent $297,685 with Apollo Jets, a, a private jet <laughs> charter uh, service. Uh, in one month, and you're telling me he doesn't believe the things he's saying about global warming? He's got to get there quickly. Well, and in fairness, when you have three homes uh, while you're suffering for, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the working class, that requires a lot of jet travel to get back and forth to those uh, $50,000 honorarium speaking hey, engagements. That Steve, I'm, I'm going to push back a little bit. I will pause it. I do think that, that generally... Uh, Democrats and progressives do believe the stuff they're espousing. I, I don't know that they always live up to it. And I and so I would say the gap is one of hypocrisy, but not of actual, um, you know, sort of cynical uh, lying about the ideology they're professing. It's not cynical. It's it's immaturity. When I was a child, I thought spoken reason as a child. When I became a man, I set aside childish things. When we were kids, did we really love that song? Did we really love our favorite team? Did we really love that band? Well, yeah. And we were 11. Okay, we didn't understand what love was. All right. We were immature. We were children. The credo of progressivism is very simple because I want to whatever I want. I will justify whatever I need to reverse engineer, whatever philosophy I need to deconstruct, whatever cafeteria Christianity I need to choose from the menu where Leviticus both is terrible to gaze but also the basis of my immigration uh, system at the exact same time. I, I can just do whatever I want because I want to. And then when I, when, I, when I finish Antonio Gramsci's long march through the institutions, so I control the college campuses and I control the media, four legs good, two legs bad becomes four legs are good, but two legs are even better because I want to. It's really about coercion, control, and power. And so- that's really what progressivism is. And now you're watching it, to borrow one of its own terms, transition. It is transitioning now from postmodernism to evangelism to cultural terraforming. And you saw that with one of the most powerful progressives in the world this week, Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, 
He was literally talking about deplatforming people that he finds objectionable. And look at the terms he used. We put this uh, this video on my on my Facebook wall. He used the terms, and I quote, "sin." He used the terms, and I quote, "judgment." Now I'm old enough, and I think all of us listening are old enough to remember we couldn't use those words anymore. They were intolerant. Well, they're using those words now. They're co-opting this now. They are now in. The, they're now spreading the new time religion. So I I happen to agree with you, Steve. That um, it, with the exception of this, I think there's a difference between progressives. I think we're out of the progressive era. I think we're in the postmodern era, and it is the truly radical. Uh, postmodernists that have control or the hands around the throat of the culture uh, and uh, and they are culturally terraforming. I don't think it's the the average progressive. I think the the progressives like uh, Bernie Sanders, who was not really a progressive, he's really more of a Marxist. I mean, he, he would say as much. He's a socialist. Yes, like he's, he's a socialist. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, the average person who claims to be a progressive, I don't think is in that category. I think there's 10% of this population that would like to just take us to hell. Um, and they would, and they believe it, that it would be a great thing. I, I think that's true. I think it's a bad idea to view any, any large group of political people as monolithic. Um, if we're looking at the, if, even if we're looking at like the Libertarian Party, there's different camps within the Libertarian Party. There's certainly different camps within the Republican Party, and there's different camps within the Democratic Party. Uh, and and I, I would agree with you. I think most most Democrats want America to be good. They like America. They're, they're rooting for good things. However, they have a different way of doing it. Um, so putting all of them into that kind of anarchic, destroying the the, the civilization thing, I, I think, would be uh, overshooting the mark. And I don't think that... Uh, I, I like your opinion on this, Steve, that um, what's happening in uh, Paris goes to show that 80% of the people in France believe in global warming. They believe in it. However, when it, when it actually comes down to it and it's going to affect their life... They're like, well, no, 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 no. I want to do something, but I want them to do something. Mm. I want them to pay for it, not me. And that's where a real problem comes in. And and I think what you're talking about, you know, it's do as I say, not as I do. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that is the childlike thinking of I want things without consequences um, or I want to pass those consequences on somebody else. And and this has been a several staged cultural devolution. It, it's been a cloward pivoting. On a, on a devolution scale. It, that's what, The welfare state was the first salvo. And you begin this notion that we're going to devolve from a safety net to a full-fledged welfare state. And at the heart of it is this notion that I have to subsidize other people's poor choices. That the, the, and therefore, you're not accountable for your actions. And we're going to create things like marriage penalties. And we're going to incentivize things like out-of-wedlock births. Um, that's the first and opening salvo that I'm entitled to something that doesn't belong to me rather than face accountability for a poor life choice that I made. You meet, you reach the next stage now where this mindset becomes institutionalized. And that's what you're talking about right now. And this goes to the, what the theme of our show was for this year, which was worldview. And we started off our, our year talking about the seven deadly worldviews and the last stage, and, and they go in stages. And the last stage is secular humanism or postmodernism. And it's always, whatever it's been called in past eras, it's a temporary staging ground because we want to believe in something transcendent. We all have the Blaise Pascal described God-shaped hole in our heart, 
And so this is the final stage of deconstruction in order to prepare the culture for the next transcendent truth to come. If you look at Europe, the two transcendent truths, and they're about a quarter century ahead of us on the devolution scale, the, the, the two new transcendent truths are cultural Marxism uh, and, and Islam, which is, you know, you have a lot of former Catholic churches now or mosques in Europe. The same thing is going to happen here as well. If you don't see spiritual revival in America, in a quarter century, we're going to be exactly where you see France, exactly where you see the UK. We're heading there now. Look at what the so-called conservative parties are in Europe. Look what's happening to the so-called conservative party in America. They're really, we're just not that far left parties. And that's exactly what's happening here. And it's unavoidable unless you have uh, a great awakening of the likes of which that gave birth to liberty in America in the first place. I will tell you, um, I think you're wrong on your uh, on your analysis of 25 years. I don't think we're that far behind. I really don't. I mean, it, look how fast optimism this morning. And then you guys peed all over me. <laughs> Steve, thanks so much. Steve Dace follows this program on the Blaze TV network. Uh, you can check him out uh, either just by watching uh, TV or you can watch online. Uh, his podcast, his show, all of us, all of our shows are available on your time. And all of our podcasts are all found at the Blaze TV. So just go to blazetv.com. That's blazetv.com and uh, poke around and check us out. See what we have to offer now. Blazetv.com slash Beck. And if you use the promo code Beck Christmas when you sign up, you're going to save $20 on the uh, on the year. So Please use Beck Christmas, blazetv.com. Sponsor this half, I, uh, half hour is Filter By. Um, have you ever, do you, did, have you ever owned a house yet? No, I'm in an apartment. You're in an apartment. Okay, so you've never had to change your filters. No, but I actually was thinking about that last night because I keep, um, I keep waking up with a stuffed up nose. Uh, and have, have thought about changing the filters. So this, I'm your target de- demographic right. for this. Okay. And we didn't we didn't pre come up. This isn't a shtick. <laughs> yeah, this right. is an actual. Right. I was like, I, I need to figure out how to sleep better. Yeah. So uh, changing your filters. This is the uh, this is the filter that I. Now these start out white. Okay. I'm not a. Which is, I'm not exactly a, ha- a handy guy. You know what I mean. I changed my filter uh, and I pulled it out and I'm like. Oh, and I I get the new one from Filter Buy, and it looks just like this, except it's pure white. It's like this white, and uh, I was like, "Oh, I mean, I should have shaved." How, it how much earlier. are you smoking in your home, Glenn? I know, isn't that crazy? Yeah, isn't that crazy? Do you, uh, you have like a coal mine in there that you like just know, for fun? You just send the, the, the sun down to, to well, rake coal. It's just you know, that's just me not uh, doing what I'm supposed to do. Okay, because <laughs> I don't ever want to go to Home Depot and get a mm. stupid filter. So Filter Buy sends them to your house. Um, you just order them and you save 5% if you put it on automatic renewal. So every like six months or whenever, it, I don't even know when you're supposed to change the damn thing, but yeah, you know, the next one won't look like that. When I pull it out, all made here in America, custom options, they ship free within 24 hours and you'll save 5% when you subscribe for auto replacement. You'll never forget to change it again. Cause this one came to my front door or the one that I replaced this one came to my front door and I was like, Oh, I should find out where my filters are. And uh, and I changed them, and it's a good thing. You won't have the stuffy uh, the stuffy nose. I'm going to look into this. Filter by. Save you time and money. Uh, it's filter by, B-U-I dot com. Filter by dot com. 
So I, I you know, um, we have Andrew Heaton uh, with us, who's a libertarian uh, and um, and the host of something's something's off with Andrew Heaton. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you 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 kind of had a problem with what uh, Steve was saying there. I, I could sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, however, if you're looking at this as the politicians, not the people, but the politicians. Okay. Do you find that true at all? That that there are a lot of politicians like, you know, the, the Macron. He might believe in all of this stuff, but he's not. He's not going to take the brunt of it. None of them are going to take the brunt. No, none of them. It's the let them eat cake kind of well, attitude. I, I, I will say when you when you brought up the French fuel protests, it reminded me. Do, do you know T Boone Pickens? Have you met him? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So T Boone, if you're not if, for, for those of you that don't know our billionaire friends. Uh, and I've, I've only I've only met him one time, but T, T Boone's a philanthropist and an, an oil guy, and I guess now like a, a, a gas guy uh, from Texas, but um, big donor in, in universities in Oklahoma, where I'm from. Uh, I met him when I was working for Congress, and he he was giving a big spiel. I think he was trying to get subsidies for gas or something. Mm-hmm. I don't remember what it was, mm-hmm. but but I, I raised my hand and said, you know, as an environmentalist, I'm kind of concerned about this. And he, with very limited snark, he said, Yeah, everybody's an environmentalist till you ask him to pay a couple hundred bucks. And then he just kept moving on. And I think he was dead right about that. I think he was absolutely right about that. Everybody's an environmentalist when, when being an environmentalist is liking Captain Planet on Facebook. And mm-hmm. then when you actually, it's like, by the way, but you shouldn't go to Italy because that takes a lot of carbon. F- which, by the way, this is true. Like recycling is garbage. Recycling, I'm just going to rant for a second. Recy- like to, to have any type of carbon impact uh, with recycling, you'd have to recycle like a thousand bottles. So People you, you- go crazy when you say that. Because it's I, religious. Yeah, it's, I, it, it, is it, is. A, it is. It is a spiritual practice like it going is. to church. It is, it's not rooted in empiricism. But that's uh, exactly what Steve Dace was talking about. Uh, okay, so this, this so is... So hang on, hang on, hang on. We've got to take a break. It's just, you don't want to miss the rest of the program. We've got a lot of great stuff, including the latest on France and the economy uh, and some of the radical stuff that is, uh, that's happening that you need to be aware of coming up. All right. Let me tell you about uh, Home Title Lock. Home Title Lock. uh, There was an FBI agent, a retired FBI agent who came here. He had bought online a fake notary for my town. Um, He had uh, went down to my town, got the, the deal where you can transfer titles. He had filled it all out. He had done all of this stuff. All he had to do was assign the fake notary and then turn it in for 40 bucks. And he would have owned my home. Nobody is watching out for this. Your home title, your mortgages are now unprotected, and only one company is standing at that door and and sees all of the titles that are all kept in one vault, all the titles, and when they're changed. Home Title Lock. Let them oversee your title. Make sure nobody's doing anything with it, especially your parents or somebody who has a lot of equity in their house, been living there for a long time. They are massive targets. Again, it's like 40 bucks and not hard to do. HomeTitleLock.com. Go there now. Get a $100 search for free when you sign up. Make sure this hasn't already happened. HomeTitleLock.com. I have it on my house. You should have it on yours. HomeTitleLock.com. Glenn Beck. Well, I, I, I really want to talk to you about Paris. Do elections have any consequences at all? I spoke to George W. Bush one time in the Oval Office, and he told me, don't worry about who's going to sit behind the Resolute Desk. He said, ultimately, it doesn't matter. He said, everyone elected would always be beholden to the same political restraints. They'd have the same basic advice, and they would see that they really have no choice. 
he meant this to make me feel better and i didn't it i didn't it didn't work i left there going oh that's not good wait what now maybe there's a little comfort to know if you know bernie sanders were ever elected that he'd have to deal with that same realization but on the other hand what happens when you know the public figures all of this out and what happens to the social contract with the government what happens if Republican voters never get a repeal of Obamacare? Spending never gets cut. Taxes are never lowered. They never get a border wall. What happens when progressive Democrats never get a single payer, a $15 an hour minimum wage or free college? How long before the social contract is burned and people start going out into the streets? I know that sounds crazy, but look at Paris. The Paris Yellow Vest Riots began in November as a protest against the radical climate change agenda. Now, no, no, no. Not the agenda. The actual cost to them. Now, the media is not reporting it this way. But this is a stunning rebuke of the climate movement. They, oppo- they, they, they imposed a gas tax that was part of France's version of, you know, what Americans like Ocasio-Cortez uh, and Bernie Sanders are hoping to get done with their new Green Deal. But the French said first, yes, until it was imposed on them, they were like, whoa, 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 no. So they hit the streets in droves. A quarter of a million people showed up. That's the first riot, burning cars, smashing windows, even attacking police. Those numbers continued this past weekend, and it actually forced President Macron to first delay his fuel tax for six months. And then they said, yeah, no, I don't think that's good enough and fully cancel it yesterday. So now are the French packing up their yellow vest and going home? No. Now they're doubling down. The democratic system in France has lost its social contract with the people. They're tired of being ignored. They're drawing up a new list of demands. Conservatives are calling for even lower taxes and more jobs. Liberals rioting side by side with conservatives are now calling for smarter taxes and a redistribution of wealth. Let them eat cake. Is that the guillotine I hear being sharpened? France's largest farmers union has pledged to enter the riots starting on Saturday. All of the major trucking unions have announced their plans to join as well to protest a cut in overtime rates. Every Frenchman that can don a yellow vest is planning to march this weekend, and nearly every one of them has a different complaint. Taxes, wages, jobs, immigration. This monster is growing And it is beginning to spread all over Europe. It's almost like there would be a caliphate established after the Arab Spring, which would destabilize the Middle East, which would then spread up to Europe and begin to destabilize Europe. And the left and the right would begin to work together to collapse the European system. And then it would spread to America. Gee, it's almost like that. Good thing that was dismissed by the political elite and everybody laughed at it. This is what happens when political promises go empty year after year after year after year. It only takes one spark for the powder keg to explode. And it usually happens, usually happens when there is great suffering economically. In most of Europe, that spark was the immigration crisis. Wait until they have real economic downturns. As the economy worsens in Europe and the progressive policies like the climate change agenda made things worse, the social contract broke apart. Elections do have consequences. 
And those that are elected, if they never deliver on their promises, if they ignore the issues that voters care about, Paris is the result. It's Thursday, December 6th. You're listening to the Glenn Beck Program. We were supposed to have Gavin McGinnis join us, uh, and uh, he's running a little late, um, or he's in a different time zone. Uh, but uh, I was anxious to hear him talk about uh, the Paris riots because not sure what he would say. What I So if uh, I'm kind of looking at this and I'm thinking that Paris might just be on the Eighth Republic or because Paris has had several republics now, right? We're on yeah, yeah, Republic yeah. number five. Like mm-hmm. it's they kind of um, they just kind of reboot every few years. So it wouldn't it wouldn't. It wouldn't surprise me if uh, they have like a new constitution within six months or so and they kind of reorganize. Uh, you know, in 1968, they almost became a communist country. Ugh. It was really close. Um, and I could see this happening there. You know, they, in Europe, they only have right or left as communist and fascist. It's the middle ground that you have the most amount of freedom in Europe. Mm. Um, you know, not here in America, but they don't have the American they don't have, you know, they don't have rights. They've, they've like got a do. very different system in France. I mean, like they, they, uh, it's effectively illegal to fire someone in France. Yes, it's, it's effectively illegal, and I'm, I'm not being hyperbolic. It's just very, and and it's, it's one of those things no, where big companies have whole floors of people, yeah, who they just can't fire. And if you're, if if I'm an employer in France, and probably never will be, but if I am. <laughs> <laughs> then I'm going to probably try and hire freelancers as opposed to full-time people that I can get rid of if I need to. Or I might not hire anybody because I'm worried about getting saddlebagged with someone that's a bad employee. There are all sorts of these bad economic uh, consequences that happen to a lot of the stuff happening over there. And they've got a – yeah, it's it's a, a much more um, interventionist, statist economy. But did you notice what they were talking about? The, the truckers now are saying that we, um, we're demanding that you don't cut – our, our See, overtime. And that's why I'm thinking this might turn into a new constitution, because if, if it was just we want lower gas taxes, then that's a one issue. But if it's just everyone in France goes like, you know what? And also refrigerators are too small and everybody yeah, comes out right. and starts getting mad. Then it's like, ah, at that point, they might just have to restart everything. Right. But who is who's who there is talking about more rights, more freedoms? I mean, in that list that I just gave, they're all things that the government should provide or should guarantee. You know what's weird? France used to be, like before England, France was the the kind of bastion of classical liberalism, of enlightenment freedom, like uh, like Fre- uh, Frederick Bastiat, uh, who wrote this wonderful essay on uh, the, the Candlemaker's Lament, where he's satirizing, um, outlawing the sun because it puts too many candlemakers out of business. Um, French. There were a bunch, and then it. I don't. I don't know what happened. I honestly don't. French but it, Revolution. It is that, and they, there was like, nope, that's not an acceptable yeah. strain of, of philosophy anymore. You need yeah, to be. No. And then Marxism really kind of. I mean, Marxism was around before Marx was Marx. Um, he just kind of codified it, but it, it. You know, when you have the guillotine, and you see what the bloodbath that turns into, and you're like, nah, you know, no, I don't think so. You, you know, Paris. They. You, you probably. I think this is a well-known fact that Paris had thought it was going to get rid of the Eiffel Tower at one point. It was a temporary thing because it was for a World's Fair. But what I learned recently, and I think this is amazing, is that the Eiffel Tower was one of like three finalists, and one of the other finalists was a giant guillotine to celebrate the French Revolution. And I think what a romantic comedies would be so different if it was always this <laughs> guillotine in the background. Uh, it would just completely, because we think of 
Paris is like, oh, it's the city of love. And it like if, if it had a giant guillotine, it would be the city of blood but and would it, turmoil. Wouldn't it be such a great offset of the Statue of Liberty? Because it would be like her head would be the only <laughs> neck that would fit in it. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's uh it's uh it's not necessarily a good thing. Um what is what is happening over in Europe and it is because people are being regulated and taxed to death. Now they're asking for it. They're asking for it. They say they want these things, but then they don't want to pay for it. They want somebody else to pay for it. Well, let me give you uh let me give you a story um uh from California. California now has just become the first state to uh, to uh, mandate solar panels. I saw that on yeah. the roof of all new homes. Is is it just? And I've I've not looked through the specific legislation. Is it a certain amount of the home's power has to come from that, or there have to be X amount of panels per square footage? Does or? it matter? No, and and see, this is the weird thing is like again, like the I, I'm big on I'm I think I'm bigger on unforeseen consequences than I am on libertarianism. It's not even so much that I'm just like, can you everybody just think about what's going to happen if you're going to force people to do things? So, like in this instance, um, if, if, with with environmentalism at large, solar panels solar panels are still a trade off. You're you're going to you have to extract heavy metals to get them. Uh, you have to do all these things. It might be the best thing. I'm not saying it's a bad. It's a terrible idea. But uh, would it? I, I could see other better ways to do it. Like if, if rather than strong arming solar power, in th- if you want to take your tax dollars and put it towards something, what if you gave everybody a subsidy or a voucher so long as they had some sort of green related technology? But they're making a very specific way of doing it, and that may not be the best and most. How, how about way. how about just not taking the money? Yeah. Yeah, just just do it yourself. You know who did this? There is there is uh, I think it was either Germany or Berlin, but I think it was all of Germany mandated solar panels. Well, now solar panels, uh, these outdated old solar panels, these giant monstrosities that can that are no good. They're just they're just decaying on the top of these houses. Hmm. Solar energy is not ready for prime time yet. Yeah. We're close, but it's not ready for prime time. The the batteries are not there. Uh, the 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 size of these things. I put solar panels up on my house in um, uh, in Idaho. I've already replaced them. Uh, I've already upgraded the system. Uh, the batteries are like uh, they're, they're a fortune they're a fortune to put the batteries in it's just not ready yet well, what, what you should do is you should buy some spotlights like use car dealerships get some of those spotlights and and plug them in and then shine and them at your there's free energy right there glenn you're welcome Fine, i could shine them at the solar panels yes yeah, so that's what i'm saying yeah. oh that's oh yeah no, that's, the house no, that's, powers itself no that's good that's good thinking that's good thinking he's not really a morning person in uh, case you uh, in case I, you haven't, I rise from sleep as if from open heart surgery. Right. I am, I am forty percent human right now. Mm, that's a high number. Um, all right, let me tell you a little bit about Relief Factor. One hundred percent drug free, created by doctors. Four key ingredients that help your body's fight against inflammation, and that is that's the real secret. Our bodies are 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 they inflame inside they <laughs> this is all inflammation this this is not food this is not i haven't gained weight this is all inflammation um i wish quick start uh with relief factor will will reduce that inflammation in the first three weeks 70 percent of the people who try this quick start they find relief 
in their pain. They feel better. They're they're actually able to do the things uh, that they they want to do. If you are in pain and you want your life back and you don't want to take a bunch of opioids, don't do it. Try this, please. I tried this last year. I said I would try it for three weeks. My wife forced me. And uh, and I didn't believe it would make a difference. And it did. I still take it three times a day. And it's made me feel much, much better. Drug freeway, a natural way to ease your pain is Relief Factor at relieffactor.com. That's relieffactor.com. We want to uh, I want to bring in uh, Justin Wheeler, who is um, a researcher for me and 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 really watches uh, what's happening in Wall Street and the economy. Uh, and maybe are you would you say you're a little more optimistic than I am? Sure, I, I think so. Yeah, uh, you know, you're a you're an optimistic catastrophist, and right. I think I'm an optimist and occasionally catastrophist. But so, what is happening with Wall Street? Down now, four hundred and thirty three points yesterday. Uh, rallied right towards the end, but it was ugly all day long. It what's, was. What's happening? So, two schools of thought. One is this is more of a normal correction. Um, we are seeing, you know, we've had a, a long bull run. It has not, uh, you know, had a significant retrenchment for quite some time. It's had a couple of times this year where it, it looked like it was going to get into correction territory and then didn't. It slipped right to that 10% line and then it recovered quickly. Um, so the, the one school of thought is this is normal. We should expect this to occur. It is normal for a market to have to retrench for irrational investments to, mm-hmm. to, to need to get taken out of the marketplace and more rational investments to come take their place. Mm-hmm. Um, so the one school of thought is this is a normal or healthy retrenchment. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other school of thought looks back about seven or eight years and goes, it's not possible for this to be a normal or rational retrenchment because the market for the last seven to eight years has not been, been normal, normal or rational. Right. Um, we came out of the financial crisis and did abnormal, irrational things. We built up the market with $4 trillion of printed money. Uh, we brought $2 trillion of corporate money back into the United States. Trump did that, brought that money back in from overseas. And the companies took some of that money and gave it back to the workers. We saw those press releases when they occurred. Mm-hmm. But the vast majority of that money, they took it, and to avoid paying taxes on it, they invested it in their own stock. Now, it was no longer a tax that year. It would be a capital gain for the following year. So $2 trillion additional dollars went into the market that otherwise would not have been there in stock buybacks. So there really are those two two competing schools of thought. One that you'll hear from Merrill Lynch that says, this is a normal, rational retrenchment. Even if we see a 10, 15 percent uh, know, decline in the market, that's a healthy retrenchment. And early in next year, those gains will manifest themselves. And then the other one looks back a few more years and just says, I'm not really sure that's the case because and we didn't enter a healthy period. And so what does that mean for a percentage of loss? The, to get back to where we should have been, if this was a normal, healthy retrenchment, the Dow would have to lose more than 15% to 20% of its total value from, from where it got to in terms of an all-time high. Okay. And some analysts say as low as 18,000 before we'd be back to where we should have been if okay. a healthy retrenchment had occurred okay. in 2008. Right. Okay. Um, but we're not. you don't think that this is a... A 2008 style event that is on the horizon not yet i think there's actually still time left i do think we're going to see some declines uh, we should see a floor today for example around 
24,460, somewhere in that range. It should, it should level out right there and we should see some port, uh, support. And then we should actually gain back, you know, from the all time high through what we've lost today or, or into tomorrow. We should gain back 50 or 60% of that, um, over the next few weeks. And I, th- I think we'll have a relatively light end of the year season going into next year. But then we have President Donald Trump. And Trump doesn't like markets to not respond to what he's doing. You know, he made a major arrest uh, yesterday or asked his Canadian friends to make a major arrest on behalf of the U.S. Justice Department. Um, of Chinese, of a very important Chinese. A very important Chinese person, not just from who she is as a CFO of one of the largest corporations in China and the daughter of the founder of that corporation, who was also a major party member in the Communist Party. The founder was. So... Um, the Chinese obviously can't not respond to that. And then Trump, being who he is, will have to respond to them. And the way Trump responds is publicly. It is not privately through diplomatic channels. It's through Twitter. Our, our secretary of state is his Twitter account. Yes, uh, effectively. So, that's so can you tell me what what she was arrested for? Uh, no, they have not disclosed specifically other than potential violations of the uh, sanctions that we have against Iran, but nothing specific, only that there are potential violations. Um, and the, uh, the treaty that we have with Canada gives them up to 60 days to apply for her extradition to the United States. So they may hold her for up to 60 days, unless, of course, the Chinese protest and they cave into those protests. What would be our reason for doing this? Uh, of course, <sighs> this depends on how, who you ask, Glenn. There's a conspiracy corner that you can find on Zero Hedge uh, yeah. that is delightful to read uh, some mornings, and it's a great way to wake up, actually. Um, but <laughs> Peel the skin off your face. Conspiracy yes. theories are a great way to get your, your imagination stimulated it in the is, morning. It is. They're fantastic. But, you know, a couple of those that are out there right now is this is a more protracted chess game that Trump is playing against China. This is um, tantamount to what Reagan did to the Communist Party in the Soviet Union. Trump is playing that long game with China. He is not looking for a good, healthy trade agreement. He wants to bring down the party in power. And that is effectively the steps he is taking that won't take one step or two steps. It's 15 chess pieces deep, and then that party is in real trouble. I will tell you that you could make a case for that. I'm not convinced that he's a chess player. You know, he seems like more of a checkers kind of guy. (laughs) Uh, So I'm not convinced he's a chess player. But the moves that he has made, you could make a case. You can make a case that he is he is going for something much bigger, and it's the collapse of China. Yeah, Justin, can you walk me through how that would work exactly? So he's 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 uh, arresting this high profile Chinese citizen, and uh, and and we're we're having a, a trade war. How does that result in the Communist okay. Party's downfall? Hang on, just a second. We got to take a quick break, and we'll come back. Because it is an interesting answer. I don't know how much of the answer you have, but it is a very fascinating uh, uh, theory. We'll get to that. Also, um, I want to talk to you a little bit about waves. And there's this wave of pessimism that is we've never seen before. We haven't seen in a very long time, not even during the Great Depression. And we'll get to that when we come back. Yesterday's funeral of uh, George Bush was, I think, 3,200 people. Today, it is a family service of 1,200 uh, here in uh, Houston. You should be so lucky to have 50 people 
that actually care show up at uh, at your funeral. Uh, we are with uh, Justin Wheeler, who is one of the guys who does research for me and watches the economy for me and just well, stock market and tries to explain different things. And we were talking about uh, Donald Trump and his tariffs with China. He may be, may be playing a, uh, a game of chess with, uh, with China. And it's not just about a new trade deal. It's actually about taking at least... Uh, President uh, Xi out, uh, he is significantly damaging President uh, President Xi in China. Yeah, I mean, China is an interesting economy because it is still a classical mix of uh, a, a strong communist regime. But over the last 20 years, they have adopted capitalist principles in order to grow. That is how they have been able to grow is by saying, well, we got Hong Kong and Hong Kong's working. What does Hong Kong do? Well, they practice capitalism, so let's do some of that. And we've experienced this, quote-unquote, Chinese miracle. Um, you know, Trump as a strategist, we talk about is he playing chess or is he playing checkers? And Trump as a strategist, his, you know, if you read his uh, his two books from the, the 60s, but especially The Art of the Deal, which was used in Wall Street. And one of the things you learn from the movie Wall Street is that uh, these wealthy businessmen want to acquire or partner with companies. And they don't look at a company that's having a Chinese miracle and say, I want to partner with them. I want to acquire them. They say, I want that company, but I want it on its downslide. And so what do they do? They cause its downslide. They do things to impact that company so they can buy it at a, at a good deal for them. They want to buy it at a discount. So they'll buy out suppliers that are supplying that company and say, well, you're no longer getting aluminum at this discounted rate. Um, they'll make a deal with the union for the union to go on strike. They'll do things to that company. And he, Donald Trump expresses this in the book. This is strategy that you do to acquire a company at a better deal. Um, he's done it throughout his entire career. And I think we're seeing very much that same game at play for him. And it is working when he deals with uh, economic issues and diplomatic issues. He looks at the European Union. He looks at uh, England, he looks at Canada and Mexico, and now he looks at China and says, I do want a better trade deal. I can't get that better trade deal. The deal I want for the American people and that I think is best for us, I cannot get it from this communist regime. So what do I do? I take the knees out from underneath that communist regime. I hurt them where they can't hurt me back, uh, at least not in, in a grand scale. Yes, cars are going to be a little bit more expensive over here, but over there, they will have 5 million people out of work. And um, those people protest, and those people support the Communist Party. And so it does a, a significant service to him in elevating his uh, negotiating power and his position of power with them to do things that weaken that regime. He doesn't want to destroy China. This is not some racist, globalist thing. He's, he's not trying to be an imperialist. He just wants a better deal for the American people. And the best way to do that is to weaken Chinese companies and to weaken the Chinese regime. So uh, a dangerous game. Sure. And uh, when Reagan played it with the Soviet Union, he had Thatcher playing the same game. He had the Pope playing the same game. I don't think Donald Trump I'm not sure that even in his own administration, he's if he is playing this game, 
express that to everybody. I'm sure. I'm sure he has not. Right. Is, right. is, is five million angry unemployed people in China going to make a difference? I mean, it's it's a, a large population, and and they're they're so suppressive of any type of dissent. I don't know. It's it's not like uh, Xi Ping is looking at polls, going, "Oh no, they don't like me." Sure. It's and it depends on where it happens in China. So China's an interesting market now because. You do have people in China who have independently grown wealth. Yeah. You have Chinese people over the last 15 years that used to live on a rural farm and work for the Communist Party growing you know, rice and then now drive a car in Shanghai. And just like us, if it comes to giving up that car, they now know I can have a car. I don't want to give up that car. So if you end up with 5 or 10 or 20 million unemployed people in rural China that is not covered by the news media and where people still are poor, no, it won't matter. If you end up with 5 or 10 million unemployed people in Shanghai and in the larger metropolitan areas, it will matter significantly. That's really what happened to the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union collapsed on the protest of 10 million people, Mm. with 200 million citizens, but 10 million people protested the, the entire communist regime collapsed there, so the, it depends the, where it happens yeah and they're very the one thing that the communists have known and this is why i think that they're they're you know they have their total surveillance state by 2020 um is they can't handle they're so fragile that they can't handle any real unrest i mean they this is why they built those ghost cities they built those damn ghost cities because they can't have this stop because they know if it stops, there's been enough people who have built those that are looking in going, I don't live like this. Wait a minute. People can live like this. And once they see that, they want that. I, I think the, the Chinese regime has been far more competent in terms of retaining its totalitarianism than the Soviets were. Because mm-hmm. uh, Gorbachev, and I'm, this is not a slander to Reagan, by the way, but when, when we say that Reagan won the Cold, the Cold War, I think that, that you're giving communism far too much credit. Or I'm sorry, you're giving Reagan too much credit uh, and communism too much credit. Communism collapsed because communism is stupid. Correct. Uh, but what, what Gorbachev did was Gorbachev looked at this kind of fraying Soviet empire and he went, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give people more freedom and they will love me in the government as a result of this. Mm-hmm. And what happened was they went, you know what, now that I've got more freedom, I think of myself more as a Ukrainian than I do as a Soviet, a Soviet citizen. And the whole thing imploded. China's learned from that model. And China's gone, we're going to give enough economic freedom that we can get some money going, but we're not going to give any type of, there. no, you do not get any rights to protest or anything like that. Uh, and and they've, they've managed to keep that grip on power. Agreed. And the, I mean, there's a couple of differences the Soviet Union built itself as an empire. They went and conquered numerous countries yeah. around them. China is insular. They have not conquered outside of their own border since World War II. I mean, they really are a cohesive set of, of independent states with, with different cultures internally, but they are a cohesive nation. They think of themselves as Chinese. Yeah. Uh, so that's a great point. Um, the other significant difference, though, of course, is what Glenn was talking about with that total surveillance state. They want to snuff out dissidents at one person. Yeah. They don't want to wait till it's 20,000 people or Tiananmen Square anymore. They've learned that lesson. So that's why they want to be able to find one person in a big city and find them right now and shut them up. And they're, and they're getting it. We've, we've talked previously, and I'm sure you've covered a lot on the whole uh, credit rating system, the social credit rating system Correct. they have, where yeah. if, you're, if you're looking at the wrong Google uh, search images, you're, you're seeing unpatriotic pornography, whatever the thing is, um, they can begin to algorithmically determine that you could be a problem person, and we're just going to grind you to a dust to make sure that that doesn't happen. So I find it interesting. Let me switch back to, um, well, before we move off of China, um, we're playing a dangerous game because they hold our treasuries. 
Um, we're having a lot of debt come back up for sale. There's no real buyers, which means we have to raise the interest rates. Um, and, and they do have the leverage to hurt us. Now we have the leverage to, I mean, if we go down, we both go down, right? That's correct. So, but it is a very delicate game that we're playing here. It's a very delicate dance of it's, it's chemotherapy. What we're engaging in right now is chemotherapy. You might kill the the cancer, but the chemo may kill you as well. It's it's a very fair point. Um, they do hold a significant amount of U.S. debt, and they have a you know uh, no pun intended Trump card to play that Trump doesn't have to play, and that's labor. China can bring a massive amount of effectively slave slave labor to bear. To shore up any shortcomings they have in technological advances, they can put 100 million people to projects if they need to at, at basically slave wages to overcome us saying, hey, we're no longer going to you know, do manufacturing of this type or we're no longer going to trade with China. So they have that card that they can play, but that card is very dangerous for them to play um, now that they have introduced some levels of capitalist freedom and and wealth into that country. Um Playing that card is very difficult for them to do. It's certainly more difficult than it was before they inherited Hong Kong and started to adopt some capitalist uh, and, policies. And how long do we have uh, with the American people? When uh, wh- how, how much of a leash does, uh, does Trump have with the American people on, for instance, farmers are hurting. They're still saying, you know what, I still... Trust him, it's going to work out, but they're really hurting when he says, you know, hey, we can, you know, we can take another 10 or 20 percent on our iPhones. Once that really starts hitting and impacting people, no, they're, they're not going to put up with it for very long. I agree with that. It's, it's very much like we just saw with with France and a 10 percent increase in gas prices. You know, there was an assumption that oh, these people support a green economy 10 oh, percent more. They'll pay it because they support this. But when the reality gets there and you're paying 20% more for your iPhone, or if you're a parent, your four kids' iPhones, all of a sudden that starts to have a significant impact to your disposable income. Um, one other thing I wanted to touch on that, that you brought up, and I, I just want to bring it up because uh, we, we talked five or six years ago about the fact that the Fed had run out of bullets. The Fed mm-hmm. jumped in and saved the economy. They pumped $4 trillion plus into mm-hmm. the economy. They loaned a bunch of money out at 0% interest, and they lowered interest rates to zero. And they were out of bullets, but they've reloaded. That's what I thought. Interest rates are back up now. the The Fed has, you know, interest rates up in the in the. And they've you know, offloaded some of their debt. Yes, uh, more than a trillion dollars has expired of the debt that, that the Fed bought the you know Treasury instruments. the The Fed didn't sell them back into the market. The Fed just let them expire and got paid back by the Treasury. Um, and uh, ostensibly, all the profits from that sale went back to the Treasury. Uh, if the, you believe the paperwork that they filed. <laughs> So the Fed, the Fed has reloaded. Yes, China currently owns uh, in the neighborhood of $1.7 to $2 trillion of U.S. debt. But the Fed could step in and buy that now. They couldn't have five years ago or six years ago. They were out of bullets. But now they could step in and buy that. They could reload their balance sheet back to $4 trillion and buy all of the Chinese debt if the Chinese decided to dump it on the market to punish us. When you say that they were out of bullets, do you, was there some sort of statute limitation on the amount of money that they could print? I'm unaware of such. Or, or <laughs> no, you just you can't. When you're at zero, you have no more. You have no uh, other place to go. You have to go to negative interest rates. Right. You have to just start saying, "Please take this. I'll take. I'll pay you money to take." Which this. some okay. some countries did. They Obviously, have. in Europe, uh, that happened quite a bit in in South America. 
Um, and most of those have stabilized back to zero or, or zero plus interest rates. We certainly could, you know, again, spend that type of ammunition and, and go zero. The United States never has, but we could. Um, the, the other, uh, again, challenging thing is the other bullets that the Fed can always spend is just printing more money. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean the, the type of money printing they did was to pump that money into Wall Street. They, they printed a bunch oh. of money, but really they just bought securities and gave loans to big corporations. Very few of us. I mean, because those poor guys at Wall Street really needed it. I mean, you know, I was yes. doing okay. Yeah. I've got a canoe. <laughs> yeah. I don't need any more money. Right. Um, so, <clears throat> but they could do that other type of printing. They could do the helicopter drop that we've, you know, it's been talked about for a long time as the last ditch effort of trying to save an economy. Which is also a great way to, to rob anybody that's actually stored up wealth at any point because your inflation is just taxation without legislation. Mm-hmm. It's a way of like, I'm going to mm-hmm. print away. I'm, 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 I'm going to make, uh, I owe money, and so I'm going to make my money less valuable so that I effectively owe less money. But if you've, if you've spent 40 years trying to uh, amass a savings account, well, there's 40% of your savings account gone. Yeah, Germany taught us that in two years in the 20s, and our country has taught us that over 70 years since then. Oh. Same lesson. All right, um, back in just a second. I, I do want to talk to um, uh, Justin about this um, this sentiment, this pessimism that is is really kind of put a damper around the entire world and its effect and we haven't seen this kind of pessimism even during the great depression so we'll talk about that coming up uh with uh, justin wheeler he's uh my uh researcher for the economy and the stock market and uh, and how it all fits together more in just a second first let me tell you about lifelock another data breach major hotel chain Announced massive data breach exposed up to 500 million customers. Justin, maybe you know who who would that? I mean, what what hotel chain has 500 million customers? Their passports uh, numbers, their social security card, their credit card, number, all of that. Who do you suppose that was? Could have been, could have been Marriott. Could have been Marriott. Uh, anyway, billions of records have been stolen through uh, stolen through uh, the last just couple of years through just just little cracks in the system. It's going to hit you and you can't, I mean, you just can't protect yourself against everything. LifeLock now with Norton security. LifeLock uses a technology that they've built that only they have that detect and alert you to a wide range of identity threats, uh, threats. The, uh, the Norton security edition protects your devices against cyber threats like malware, people trying to hijack your systems. Now, nobody can prevent all identity theft or cybercrime or monitor all transactions at all businesses, but these guys are the absolute best. And right now, if you go to lifelock.com and use the promo code BECK, you'll get an additional 15% off your first year. That's promo code BECK. Extra 15% off now at lifelock.com. We're going to talk um, uh, some more about the economy, but uh, but more about the psychology of what is going on and what's happening uh, in the world. We're entering a time of pessimism that we have not seen. Well, what's the name of this wave called? Elliott Wave Theory. Elliott Wave Theory. Um, but uh, it's a it's a really interesting thing to see. It's tied to the markets, but I I think it's more interesting to look at it just as a uh, as a as a gauge of society and what what it actually could mean in in a million different ways. We'll talk about that coming up in uh, just a second. Also, uh, Rudolph, 
uh, has uh, spoken. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, the actual, the one, the lady who played Rudolph. I didn't, I didn't know it was a woman that played that. Now I guess I could be offended that I've been lied to my whole uh, my whole year my whole life that it was a that the Rudolph was a boy. It's but, still a reindeer though, right? Well, I'm not sure. Okay, I'm, I'm just not. making sure. I don't want I don't want that element yeah. of my childhood taken away. I assume they trained a reindeer to talk. Uh, she has spoken out about all of this nonsense back and forth, and she basically said, uh, "Don't watch it. If you don't like it, don't watch it. Leave it alone." We'll give you all of that coming up in just a second. Hey, it's Glenn, and I want to tell you about something that you should either end your day with or um, start your morning with, and that is the news and why it matters. If you like this show, you're going to love the news and why it matters. It's a bunch of us that all get together at the end of the day and just talk about the stories that matter to you and your life. The news and why it matters. Look for it now wherever you download your favorite podcast. Glenn Beck. You know, Christmas is the gift that just keeps on giving uh, for the radical leftist. Uh, the, the, the charade goes on year after year where decent folks across the country just try to enjoy and celebrate Christmas. You know, the most wonderful time of the year. Why is it the most wonderful time of the year? Why is it? Because you kind of generally act like a human being for maybe a couple of days. You're like, ah, oh, you know what? I'm going to pretend to care about people. I'm going to be nice to people. I'm going to smile and say, Merry Christmas back to you. It's the most wonderful time of the year that militant progressives don't like at all. And it's a little exhausting. It's got to be. You're Come on. You're not really outraged by Rudolph. Are you really? Really? That's what you got going on in your life? I mean, the thing's been on the air since 1964. And if, first of all, if this is the first year that you've noticed that Santa was a jerk in that, where were you? You don't like Christmas, and it's totally fine. It is. I'm totally fine with that. But could you just be cool with people who do like Christmas? You know, there's tons of people out there that celebrate Christmas, and they're tired of their happiness being held hostage by an extreme minority, sometimes just one person going, I don't like that. No, sir, I don't like that at all. This year, a self-described unintentional Grinch who stole Christmas is in the lead to win Scrooge of the Year, the principal at Manchester Elementary in Omaha, Nebraska. Omaha, Nebraska. She sent her teachers a memo this week outlining all of the Christmas-related items and activities that will not be allowed in the classroom, and you will not have an extra scuttle of coal. The ban list includes... Santa, Christmas trees, elf on a shelf. Oh, man, I, I'm for execution for the person who came up with elf on the shelf myself. But singing Christmas carols, playing Christmas music, making an ornament as a gift, any red or green items. Oh, hates the planet and communism, I see. Reindeer and candy canes. Now, not because the sugar will make the children hyper, because I guess Halloween was okay. But as the principal explains, the candy cane is shaped like the letter J for Jesus. She also writes, red is for the blood of Christ. And white is the symbol of his resurrection. Oh my gosh, I am so offended by her memo. What kind of stuff is she trying to preach? 
In case you try to cheat, different colored candy canes are also not allowed because they still have the first letter of Jesus. So why is this principal going out of her way to delete any trace of Christmas in her school? She says, quote, I come from a place that uh, uh, from a place that Christmas and the like are not allowed in schools. Where is that? Russia? Where where is that? Her list, quote, aligns with my interpretation of our expectations as a public school who seeks to be inclusive and culturally sensitive to all of our students. No, you misunderstand the word inclusive. What about being inclusive and, and, and sensitive to those students, probably the vast majority, who do celebrate Christmas? I mean, does your kid have to celebrate Ramadan and, I don't know, eat the food or whatever the hell that is? I mean, nothing against Ramadan. That's fine. You want to do Ramadan? That's fine. I don't care. I don't care that you teach my kids about Ramadan. Can you stop with a hate on Christmas and Christianity? Can you ask yourself, are you the only one that doesn't feel like Christmas is the most wonderful time of the year? Now, I think it's gotten less so since I was a kid, but that just might be because I'm getting old and grumpy. But I know when I was a kid, it was the most wonderful time of the year. It was a, it was a, it was a time of new expectations, new hopes. It was a, a time, I remember when the snow would fall and everything would be quiet outside, and it just brought peace. Now, far as I'm concerned as well, snowing the day after Christmas doesn't help anybody's mood snow between thanksgiving and christmas is delightful why christmas i mean do we how do we miss that christmas has the word christ in it christmas has been diminished over the years no offense, Rudolph, by Rudolph and Santa and everything else. Those are still wonderful traditions. But we celebrate Christmas to remember what a crazy cool dude Jesus grew up to be. What a crazy, I don't care if you even believe it. What a great gift given to humanity that you can be forgiven for even the worst things you've ever done. I don't want to live in a world where there is no forgiveness. I don't want to live in a world where I, can't, I, I do something stupid and it's going to hang over my head for the rest of my life. I mean, we, we're already seeing that. It's called the Me Too movement. You say something in 1971 to somebody, God forbid, that's hanging over your head. Christmas. It's the most wonderful time of the year for a reason. And I don't care if you think it was Christ that brought this peace or, you know, I I don't care. You know, Mohammed, the Ramadan dog, whatever. I I don't know what, God forbid, you'd have any kind of legend spring out of anything Islamic. They would have killed the makers of that Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer if that had been done for Mohammed. So... I don't care how you think we got here. It worked. It worked. It creates magic and hope 
and kindness for just a few days out of the year. Leave it alone. It's Thursday, December 6th. You're listening to the Glenn Beck Program. <laughs> We're an Arbor Day family. You're an Arbor Day family? Very much an Arbor Day family, yeah. Yeah, and you have you have the same feelings about Arbor Day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's the most wonderful time of the year. <laughs> and, really? Uh, I just, I, I'm, I'm bothered about everybody taking, uh, taking the spirituality out of Arbor Day. Yeah. I, it's so pretty you much have, the exact same monologue. So you, so you have a thing with Arbor Day. You must hate Christmas because that whole thing is around cutting down of trees. Uh, yeah, you know, well, the, for those it's kind of, us, of the anti-Arbor Day, for, for those of us it? that are Arbor Day enthusiasts, you know, it's a lot of it's a, uh, birth and renewal and all of that. So eventually, you're going to get them Yule Yule logs, uh, and that's uh, you know, it's it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's a holiday that gives to yeah. a lot of other holidays. Arbor Day. So, so uh, you know, we cut down the Christmas tree, went to a tree farm, cut down the Christmas tree, and then we put it in a bucket of Miracle Grow, and because uh, we had a friend say. I did that last year, and it's and it it started sprouting roots again. And they went out and they planted it, and they uh, and 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 it grew. That's really cool. That's really yeah. cool. And so my kids are like, "Oh, we could use that next year." And I'm like, "Don't." We? I mean, I think cutting a tree down once be like sprouting roots, and they'd be like, "Oh, come on!" <laughs> You're just torturing this yeah. poor tree. This year poor after tree. Year. The tree every time I you walk by is back like stronger, and then the following year you chop it down again. Ah, <laughs> oh, but this time I will rise. No one will ever destroy me. <laughs> every time you go outside, it's like, no, it's not the time now. It's, a, it's like it's like a turkey that you kill over and over what if, again. What if you did this? Okay, what if you built like a new room in your house with fifteen uh, foot tall ceilings, and it was the Christmas tree room, and then you just like hide the tree. The rest of the year, so keep the tree in there and have a, a like a, a glass ceiling, right? <laughs> and then just like put gauze around the tree so that it's camouflaged. And then around Christmas, you just take the gauze off, and then you don't have to chop. Wouldn't the tree that down. be a weird thing to have in your living room? Just this kind of like this. I guess you could dry, dress it as a ghost for yeah. uh, for Halloween. Yeah, I mean, exactly. we, yeah. we have one in, in my living room. We have a Christmas tree. And then the rest of the year after Christmas, it gets redecorated as a Dodger tree. Okay. And we put our Dodger season tickets on it and Dodger player cards. You have so. an actual tree? Uh, well, it's a plastic tree on our mantle. So, yes. <laughs> wow, you go all out. Well, we're in L.A. So. Yeah, okay, yeah. Which, you'd, <laughs> I, would, would they kill you for a Christmas tree in L.A.? I'm not sure. Oh, I, I think absolutely. Yeah. Unless it's plastic. Unless it's plastic. That's okay. Uh, so we have uh, Justin Wheeler joining us. Uh, and uh, Justin does research for me on the economy and stock market. And, and uh, you know, I've been looking at the stock market and saying, well, this is this is exciting. Uh, and and as we were exchanging uh, thoughts the other day, uh, you told me about the Elliott wave. And I had not heard about the Elliott wave uh, and explain it here. Sure. Um, so the Elliott wave is is a, a theory that postulates that markets respond to social moods, uh, positive and negative. And the way I've had it explained best to me, I think, is this. Imagine you had the capacity every day to take a survey of millions and millions of people uh, in the U.S. and around the world constantly about how they're feeling minute by minute. How are you feeling optimistic or pessimistic? And you could do that survey not just by asking them questions. You can actually delve into their subconscious and detect how they were feeling at any given moment. Are you optimistic or are you pessimistic? Um, R.N. Elliott in the 1930s postulated 
We actually have that measure. We do that survey constantly. We are constantly measuring how people feel in terms of optimism versus pessimism. And we do it in markets. We do it in the stock market. We do it in other financial markets and money markets. We do it with bonds. Those markets move minute by minute, minute, in fact, second by second, based on how people feel. Do they feel optimistic or do they feel pessimistic at that instant? And you can start to spot those trends over time. So now you can see this in things like, for instance, cryptocurrency right now. Cryptocurrency, even though it has all of these great things that are happening, People are like, oh, I don't trust cryptocurrency because I saw what happened last time. And so they're very pessimistic on it. Uh, and as soon as that goes away and people are like, you know what? I think this really there is something to this. All of a sudden it will skyrocket again. That's right. Correct. Yes, that's exactly. Correct. So that's an individual uh, case. But the Elliott wave not only does for individual cases, but for the overall sentiment, right? Correct. That's, is is, is that's this an index? or th- I mean, is there an actual way of going where the Elliott wave is currently at 6.2? Or is this just a theory of, of looking at the market as a, a reference for... Yeah, there certainly are analysts who have tried to create composites of various things like the Dow Jones Industrial Average, the S&P 500, uh, bond, you know, various bond markets. They've tried to create composites and say, if we add all of these together, this is what the wave looks like in terms of an Elliott index of 1 to 100 or 1 to 1,000. Most Elliotticians, though, today... Uh, and the, the modern father of um, uh, of Elliott Wave Theory is a man named Robert Prechter. They just simply leverage the markets that are already there. And what they're looking for are degrees of movement between a top and a bottom. What R.N. Elliott postulated is the markets move in repeatable, recurring waves. It's not randomized. The, our, our mood is not some random set of things that just occurs completely at random all the time. It moves in waves. We as civilizations move in cycles, Kondratiev uh, cycles, for example, and markets follow those cycles. Kondratiev spotted it in a very different way. He wasn't looking for social mood or or how people felt. He was just looking at the pure economics of of the model. He wasn't thinking of why are markets moving this way. He just said, well, they do. They do move this way. And he created these long K waves that, that analysts still use today. R.N. Elliott's addition to that was simply that what is driving those markets is not, you know, just some structured uh, uh, economic model of it's going to move this much and then this much. What a lot of financial analysts look at, he said, the way people feel is what drives the market. Our social mood is the driver behind the markets, not the markets, the driver behind our social mood. It's it's why there is when you're creating a bubble, there comes a time when everybody starts jumping in. You know, and it's irrational. It is. And and it's just because the mood is so high that things are going to be great. Um, and so everybody jumps in. That is that's a negative effect of the Elliott wave, if you will. Correct. So that that, you know, we've heard that, of course, from uh, analysts calling it irrational exuberance, mm-hmm. uh, the famous Greenspan quote, the spirit animals and all that stuff. Yes. And okay. of course, getting into spirit animals. This has been studied, of course, as far back as as markets had numbers that you could track over time. The, the tulip mania, of course, mm-hmm. uh, uh, hundreds of years ago. And um, and we can you know look at the the European stock markets and the the British stock market leading into our own stock market. The really the fascinating thing that comes out of Elliott Wave, of course, you can use it for financial an, uh, analysis, and hundreds and hundreds of financial analysts do. Uh, there's lots of newsletters you can go subscribe to. There are people who will bet their entire portfolios that the market's about to decline 20% based on what the Elliott Wave theory says is going to happen. And based on how many people are getting into the market, that's a bad sign. If everyone's getting into the market right mm-hmm. now, 
Uh, very much like we saw in 19... 19- there's a bubble coming? That's right. Okay. You're in a bubble. The taxi driver is literally taking their fares that they earned that day, and at 4 o'clock, they're stopping at Wall Street and dropping them off to a broker to buy stocks. They don't even care which ones. Just buy me some stock. And that would be a very clear sign that you are in a period of irrational optimism, irrational exuberance that is not tied to fundamentals of, of the markets or of individual stocks. Um, the same thing occurs at the bottom. You get tied into irrational negativity, and there's no reason to be this negative about Bitcoin. The fundamentals are actually quite strong related to that currency and the new markets it is having the opportunity to expand into in South America, in Asia, in Africa, um, where they're jumping right over paper currencies and going, you know, they're really going from food trade to cryptocurrencies to bypass the government uh, inflation that they mm-hmm. could otherwise. Yeah, it's great for them. So uh, there's also irrational negativity around individual markets. But that's really the time you should buy in from a wave Mm -hmm. theory perspective. You want to sell the peaks and you want to buy the troughs. The other thing that comes out of wave theory, though, is the socionomic negativity that you see. Okay, and that's where I want to go next. First, let me tell you about our sponsor this half hour. It is Goldline. We were just talking about this yeah. uh, off the air. <laughs> not a uh, not a setup. I have I have this um, uh, this silver bar. I guess you could call it. It's a uh, it's a a whole group of uh, silver, and it is from the Canadian Mint. And you you it's like a credit card, and you just can snap it apart, and then you have. This is a quarter ounce of silver. So, you know, if you, you know, ever afraid that there's there's just some sort of breakdown coming or you just want to make sure that you always have some sort of, of something that is, you know, that is worth something. It's the uh, it's the uh, the silver maple flex bar from Canada and the Canadian mint that you can only get at Goldline. And you just ask if you could see it for a second, because. I, I want. I wanted to check it out. I, you know, I, I travel a fair amount. My uh, my mother has asked me repeatedly to travel with a gold coin mm-hmm. in the event that uh, um, something bad should happen and I would need to get back. And I'm I'm hesitant to do that because I'm afraid that I will lose it. But something like that, where it's not, you know, I'm, I'm not walking around with two thousand dollars in my pocket, but rather, you know, kind of a fractionalized system yeah. that I could break apart if I need to. Like that, that kind of strikes me as a, a neat thing to be. Yeah, traveling with. if you pull out a gold coin and then all of a sudden you're like, hey, could you have change for that? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I need I need to buy an avocado. <laughs> Can you give me eighty nine percent? Yeah, no, it's thing, not yeah. gonna. It's not gonna work. It's not gonna work. Um, the silver maple flax. Also, they have the gold legal tender bars, which are kind of like little chiclets that you can actually carry, like a credit card. It only available at Goldline. Call 866-GOLDLINE. Read their important risk information. Mike, make sure that gold or silver is right for you. It is right for my family. 1-866-GOLDLINE or goldline.com. Talking to Justin uh, Wheeler, who is um, talking to us a little bit about the economy and what's happening. We've talked about China and uh, what the speculation is. Uh, and this would be great if this is what Trump is really trying to do. He's trying to pull down China uh, a, a bit um, and uh, make things very uncomfortable for the communist uh, regime. Um, but I want to talk about this this Elliott wave as something that we're now seeing um, go into the pessimistic side of the Elliott wave and it is it's all encompassing right it's not just one sector that's right Um, again if you think of looking at financial markets as a mechanism to measure uh, positive upswings in mood and and negative downturns in mood um, one of the interesting things about Elliott wave that makes it differ significantly I think from other forms of technical analysis 
is that most forms of technical analysis and most financial market analysis or uh, just you know general social mood analysis look for uh, exogenous events. Something happened in the outside world that made us feel bad. Uh, terrorists blew up the World Trade Center in 2001, and we entered a period of negative social mood. The funny thing is the market started crashing 18 months before terrorists ever blew up those buildings. The markets were crashing in 2000. The attacks weren't until September 11th of 2001. So the markets were crashing for a full 18 months, and 80% of the total value that the markets lost in in total going into the end of 2001 happened before the September 11th attack, attacks, Wow, not prior. Wow. So one of the interesting things at in looking at measuring social mood, um, not just from financial markets, is the fact that things like wars occur when financial markets are depressed, not before. Okay, so let's. Uh, I'm going to have him lay this out and then tell us what it means um, uh, for us right now and for the future. Back in a second. Justin Wheeler is uh, with me, and, and he's uh, somebody who watches the stock market and the economy and the Fed and everything else, and and. Uh, we we communicate several times a week, usually with me. Alone. What the hell does this mean? Um, and we were talking about uh, this this pessimistic mood that has come across uh, the country and the world, and we haven't seen it. We haven't seen it this way since when? I know we went through it kind of in the '60s, mm-hmm. but how pessimistic are we right now as a world? It is growing significantly. I mean, the, the U.S. is a little bit of, a, of an anomaly right now. Um, financial markets around the world peaked years ago and have been declining for years. We, we haven't seen, you know, uh, all, all-time new highs in any markets really except the U.S. and a few emerging markets um, uh, for quite some time. A lot of the European markets peaked in 2012, and they've been declining since then. We see a lot of that pes- pessimism manifest in what goes on in those countries. France. It, France is a great example. Um the, the the postulate behind Elliott Wave is that as that, you know, negative social mood and that pessimism starts to take hold and we as a society start to herd around that, we start to, well, that's how the, the group is responding. The group is pessimistic. Well, I need to be pessimistic, too. And you start to glob onto those groups. And if your group is pessimistic, then you're just going to feel that way because there is safety in that herd. There's safety in that group. Um, and certainly, I think we've started to see the very strong manifestations of that um, in the anti-Trump movement. They're so pessimistic now about uh, about him and about the future of the world or America at the very least with him in power that they can't find positivity anywhere. They just can't. They can't seem to find a happy note to talk about, uh, you know, for any particular topic. But they're not really looking. I don't think they're really looking. That's right. And one of the things that occurs when you are feeling that pessimistic, anytime you're depressed, it doesn't matter if you know yes. a great comedian comes on TV, um, you don't necessarily find those jokes funny that day. But another day, you would have found those jokes to be hysterical. And so it, it is one of the uh, encroaching things that occurs with irrational pessimism and the negative social mood that occurs is that it becomes all-encompassing. It snowballs on itself, which is why you see the build-up to uh, financial market growth is often slow, steady. There are some spikes in there, but um, you know the, the, the classic model is that the, the road to ruin is rapid. Um, you can build a market over three years and lose it in 30 days, as we saw in 1929, as we saw in 1987, mm-hmm. we saw it again in, in 2001, we saw it in 2008, and are we on that doorstep in, the, in America right now? 
And that's really the question. There's, there's so much uh, that you're fighting against with pessimism because there's, we're, we're wired, human beings by nature, we feel loss stronger than we feel gain. Uh, in fact, there have been attempts to quantify it. It's, it's, I think it's like we feel loss twice as hard as we feel gain, which makes us naturally pessimistic, naturally risk averse. Uh, and uh, it's it's I, I'm I'm actually going over this for for uh, what I'm going to be talking about on, on my podcast later today is this kind of pessimism versus optimism. There was a report that came out. Um, I believe it's the Simon Abundant in, Abundance Index, uh, and uh, these um, this came out like maybe last week. Uh, a couple of professors went through uh, data from the IMF and the World Bank, and uh, basically everything's cheaper over the last twenty years. Everything has become precipitously cheaper. Everything's more abundant, uh, and for the vast majority of the planet. Uh, or I, I should say, just for the majority of the planet, the the um, like wages have gone up in in terms of value by like eighty percent. So we're like we're rolling. It's really good. But um, the the amount of uh, negative stuff happening all the time, uh, if it's anecdotal, is is broadcast more, and so we intuit that more. Um, I, I just read this fascinating uh, piece about a thing called sentiment mining, where uh, a, a, there's a I assume an academic. He went through and he came up with an algorithm on the New York Times. Not to look at the content, but just to look at negative and positive words and to, mm-hmm. to by that try and infer mm-hmm. the tone of the New York mm-hmm. Times. And you can just see this kind of plunge from like like 1960. It's pretty optimistic. And then it just all the way down. And it's not it's not correlated with any actual material abundance or harm. Everything's been going up in terms of, you know, uh, or I should say the bad things are going down. The good things are going up. I have to tell you. I- I have, I don't know why, but I have been blessed in this last year with much more appreciation for things. Like, honestly, my kids are, they're like, yes, dad, we know about the damn bananas. But like, you know, 19, 1930s, bananas were not a big deal. Nobody really had bananas. They were, they were in, you know, certain areas of the world. You, by the time you got them, they were, you know, brown and mushy and, you didn't have them. Bananas sit on my counter all the time, and I like bananas when they're just yellow with a little bit of green in them. They start to get brown. I'm done with them. Um, and my son is the same way, and we've been so picky on bananas, uh, and I so I started doing, you know, I, I mean, it's you don't want to live in my head, but started looking into bananas Keep and the going. history of bananas. <laughs> I know. I, I want to go down this trail with you, Glenn. I want to hear about the bananas. <laughs> Do you know that we wiped them out in the 1950s? Was it the 1950s? Do you yeah. know this, Justin? Yep. We, 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 we wiped them out, yeah, right? So they cover that in VeggieTales. Yeah, That's so, right. Yeah. <laughs> terrible. Yeah, terrible. Bad terrible. Bad. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, all of the things that we didn't have, even when I was growing up, Strawberries, you had them once a year. You had them at strawberry season. You get everything whenever you want it now, and it's so cheap. Yep. Uh, in, in my house, every year in our Christmas sock, at the very bottom, in the toe of the Christmas sock, what we received was an orange. Us too. You, we got an orange. And that was the time of the year that we had access to a fresh orange in mm-hmm. our household. Um, you know, growing up in a poor ho- household is great because it, gives you that appreciation. Mm-hmm. When I have an orange today and I get it from Starbucks for 79 cents, I feel I feel extremely blessed uh, and lucky that I grew up in a household where the orange at the bottom of my Christmas sock was the best present I got at I re- Christmas. I remember going to um, California for the first time and I was I maybe was 6 and uh, fresh orange juice and fresh oranges. We'd never had that before. You never hand squeezed orange juice, and and you didn't you just didn't have that. Maybe if we were lucky, you'd you know 
somebody would buy a, a, a carton or a, a crate of oranges and you'd split them as neighbors. But right. it's not like it is now. Yep, and Andrew's right. By by the measure of oranges in today's households, we're all rich. In the 30s, should, the rich people. We should come people, up with an orange index. We should have an and orange index. If, if you index. go further back, it's even more amazing. Like, uh, I, I was I was doing some um, diving on, on rather than looking at the prices for things, looking at the man hours for things. And if you go back to, like, 1800, the man hours you need to put in for an hour of artificial light was, like, a whole day. Mm-hmm. So imagine buying a candle at, like, 1800, buying a candle. That's your whole day is working to read a book for 20 minutes. And now I've got like a Kindle with I, I actually I was last night a guy came up and looked at my Kindle and it, it had 600 books on it. I think I've read 15 of them. I think I've spent <laughs> a lot of money in books I haven't read. But nonetheless, I was like, that's just amazing that we've got that much information that cheaply available to virtually everybody to bring it back to the, the positivity and negativity in terms of social mood. Um, one other thing you said that is is spot on. Thank and you. Um, in in Glenn's book, uh, Liars, if you have not had the opportunity to read that, we cover this in the introduction. Um it isn't just that we are drawn to the, the negative events uh, as opposed to positive events. Um, we are on the constant lookout for a saber-toothed cat. Yeah. Our ancestors had to spot saber-toothed cats. They had to see them. If you didn't see the saber-toothed cat in the brush, you and your family died. Yeah. That was the reality. So we are constantly programmed to be on the lookout for saber-toothed cats that are going to rush out of the bushes mm-hmm. and kill us. And that's why we love global warming. I didn't see that coming. Interesting. That, okay. You talked about it earlier, but that's why we are addicted to those things. That's why we love movies that are catastrophe movies where the earth is destroyed and L.A. falls off a cliff because we are constantly on the lookout for that. And the person who spots the, t- the saber-toothed cat is the hero of the village. Uh, I, I think this is um, something I like playing around with. Is I, li- I like playing around with different mental models that's different than kind of the traditional right versus left, mm-hmm. um, which I think is outmoded. I don't think it's helpful. Um, but one of one of the models, and this isn't an explanation for everything, but I think it's an interesting model, is rather than looking at whether you're conservative or Democrat, look at whether you're optimistic or apocalyptic, mm-hmm. and you can you can see that in both in, in both sides of all camps. There there are people that are, are prone towards we're all going to die, and there are people that are prone towards let's go buy some green bananas, uh, and it's it's interesting <laughs> to kind of look at how those mingle with each other. Well, but I'm somebody who well, first of all, I know. That we're all going to die. Um, <laughs> just a matter of time. Um, Whereas I'm like, ah, Microsoft might come up with a brain <laughs> transplant. Uh, you never know. You know, I, I'm, 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 I'm very, very optimistic on the future because uh, I believe in people, and I believe in, you know, I believe in our saber toothed cat. You, you're going to survive. You're going to survive, and it's probably not going to be as bad as you thought it would be. Um, however. Uh, you know, I also know human nature enough to know that it's never been like this and we will recover and we will get, become better, assuming that, you know, AI, ASI doesn't kill us all. Um, we'll be better for it. We'll be better for it. So so who am I? Which which side am I? Uh, I th- I'm going to give you credit for the, the optimism, but I do think you, you lend yourself towards the apocalyptic a little bit. Oh, no, I clearly do. okay then, then i'll say yes i think you're the apocalyptic camp <laughs> you were afraid to say that yes i, I you're think you're, yeah. you're 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 more of a cataclysmic you're, you're you're drawn to the cataclysmic side of things uh and uh yeah yeah and that's why, why i'm such a delightful guest is yes. i'm i'm, I'm you the know, and congenital the, optimist and the, and the thing is is that you have to have both you have to have both in society and that's why we're we're so polarized now because everybody wants only their point of view. Mm. 
Yeah. But you have to have. You said it this morning. You said you're not a morning guy. No, I'm not. A, I'm not and a morning what, guy at all. And what was your theory behind morning? Oh, people? okay. So, all right, morning people. I'm so happy for you. I'm so impressed that you woke up this morning and you did your taxes, and then you jogged around the neighborhood and walked the dog all before I woke up, which was like rising from death. Uh, no, I think that um, to to go back to the saber tooth model, our cousins or our our, our great grandparents that were fending off uh, saber tooth tigers. Uh, there was a moment where we're all getting tired. We're all around the campfire somewhere there in the Serengeti, and someone said, I, I, "We're all so tired." But I think I heard a tiger and some valiant evening person <laughs> like me went, you guys go to sleep. I'm going to sharpen a stick and stay awake. And they killed that tiger and and evening people saved the species. We would all be tiger food and the Neanderthals would be the cock of the walk if it hadn't been for us. And, uh, and then the Industrial Revolution happened. And clocks came about and morning people took over. Well done. something's off with andrew heaton it's a uh podcast uh that you can get now only on the blaze tv is that the only rant i've ever done Uh, (laughs) the only tirade i have is about morning people it is it is which is charming which is quite charming justin wheeler thank you so much and uh thanks for teaching us uh, a little bit this morning happy to be here sponsor this half hour is simply safe you can uh, you put off a lot of things, but your family security you should not put off. And Simply Safe is absolutely by far the best thing that you can do to protect your family, to protect your home and your loved ones. Um, you can you don't have to wait for a you know installation window. You don't have to wait for the guy to come and then he never shows up. You um, you don't have to have anybody come in with a little booties or any salesman come to your home and try to upsell you on anything. Simply Safe makes it really simple to keep your family safe. Thus, simplysafebeck.com. I want you to go there now, simplysafebeck.com. You buy the system that you want. They've got a great holiday deal um, going right now. You buy the system that you want. It's $14.99 a month for the monitoring. You can have it installed, completely installed in your home by you. And trust me, I can do this. I can't do anything. I could do this. You can do it within 30 minutes and there's no contracts, no wires, no strings attached. It's simply This holiday deal ends soon. Go to simply now. So yesterday we told you that uh, there are a couple of things uh, going on that MasterCard and Microsoft uh, have uh, are, have uh, teamed together to create digital identities now, I heard from a lot of people that were saying, oh, Glenn, stop panicking. That's not a bad thing. Okay, sure. MasterCard announced voting, driving, applying for a job, renting a home, getting married, boarding a plane. What do these all have in common? My answer was all the things that social credits uh, in China can stop you from doing. Theirs was y- you need to prove your identity. And that's why MasterCard and Microsoft have uh, teamed up to create a universally recognized digital identity. Okay, sounds to me the difference between 1984 and Brave New World, but maybe that's just me. Then, told you also yesterday, that there is a gun bill that is now uh, circulating in the House uh, in, uh, uh, in New York, and if you want to buy a gun... You have to turn over three years of your social media history uh, and your Internet search history to buy a gun. Okay. Um, 
All right. I guess that's common sense. It'll make everybody feel better. They say, you should have seen this online. Well, yes. But then again, who's judging this? And what is the definition of hate speech? And what are the parameters uh, of this? Then today, another announcement from Microsoft. Microsoft's top lawyer says it will never shy away from providing AI-powered weapons to the U.S. military. We at Microsoft have the military's back. Now, again, good. (laughs) I'm glad. Except I don't think we should be teaching artificial intelligence to kill people. Now, maybe that's just me, but I'm a little old-fashioned. If we're going to kill people, let's actually have a human do it. Pay an American to do that. That's a, that's a job that could go to an American. You, you, right. don't, you don't want to automate that. Right. That'll, that'll, that'll run off jobs. And they, they keep saying that, you know, well, it still has the human kill switch. I mean, the humans still have to push the actual kill switch. That, that, that is the big thing Elon Musk is big on, right? Because he's it's not specifically military, but he's he's saying AI might kill all of us. Don't like like be careful. And now, I know my, you think that I'm I'm a pessimist. <laughs> This one, I'm kind of, you know, like yeah. super robots killing people. I, I understand the, the, the cause for some, some concern there. Fear not the robot, fear the goals of the robot. And if the goal is to eliminate all hate speech and those who are uh, pushing hate speech, fear that goal because it will execute it with perfect exactness and it will not stop until all hate speech stops. That doesn't sound good for humanity. Glenn Beck, Mercury.